0: Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi.
1: Hello, everybody. We're glad that you're joining us for our Ed's Up presentation today. And we're so fortunate to have Raymond Pierce, who's the president and CEO of the Southern Education Foundation. So thank you so much, Raymond, for visiting with us today. Thank you, Kathy. I know that you have been a very busy man because reading your bio It looks like that you have uh, done just about everything you could possibly do in a lifetime. Uh, Prior to joining the Southern Education Foundation, you were dean of the School of Law at North Carolina Central University, and before that, you served as a deputy assistant secretary of the U.S. Office of Education and the Office of Civil Rights during that time, and that was during the administration of President Bill Clinton. Uh, I also know that you managed to go to Duke and- Uh, get a master's degree in divinity, and uh, I'm sure have had other adventures that uh, are too numerous to mention, but we're so glad again to have you with us, and could you just give us a little background on the Southern Education Foundation, because what I read I found fascinating.
2: Well, thank you, Kathy, and thanks for having me here, and uh, uh, yeah, that's it's it's surprising to hear um, uh, that I I received a degree from Duke Divinity School because I just graduated last year.
1: <laughs> so,
2: yeah, and, uh, I always wanted to study theology and it took me years and uh, finally went back to school and, uh, and, and got that degree. So, thanks for, for mentioning that. Uh, that, was, that was a very meaningful accomplishment for me. Uh, the Southern Education Foundation, Kathy, I, I'll tell you, I first heard of the Southern Education Foundation when I was right out of law school practicing law as a civil rights attorney in Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, at that time, I was practicing for the John Walker Law Firm, which was the premier civil rights law firm uh, in that part of the country, uh, which was um, pretty much uh, grew out of the foundation that Thurgood Marshall had placed there and others like Wiley Branton back in the 50s when they were going around the country, and particularly the South, um, filing these school desegregation cases. Uh, The one in Little Rock obviously became the big Little Rock school desegregation case that obtained national media with the president having to call out the uh, National Guard to allow nine black children to go to a previously segregated uh, white uh, high school there in Little Rock. Well, I was working for John Walker right out of law school in the 80s and uh, as a civil rights attorney. And we were preparing for a large school desegregation case over in Oklahoma that actually made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And we were on a conference call. Um, with um, the leaders of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, Mr. Julius Chambers, uh, who unfortunately recently passed away. Uh, but um, I remember Mr. Chambers saying on, that, on the speaker phone uh, when my boss was asking about some information, and my boss said, well, where can we get that data that could help advance this litigation uh, in this school case, a school equity and school desegregation case? And I remember the voice coming across the speaker saying, you can get that information from the Southern Education Foundation. So that was around 1984 1985, somewhere around there. Again, I'm a freshman lawyer. And I just, I had this impression. I said, I don't know who these guys are, the Southern Education Foundation, but obviously they are the holders of important information that you need to to make a case, to advance litigation, to be able to find the nuances and the disparities in public education um, that um, uh, at that time were the center of that case. So years later, I find myself in Washington, D.C., uh, as, as you mentioned, as the deputy chief of the of uh, the Department of Education's uh, Civil Rights Division uh, under my, uh, my mentor, my, my boss, uh, uh, Richard Riley, Secretary Riley, and I received a visit from uh, the Southern Education Foundation and they came to see me about a United States Supreme Court decision that came out of a case in Mississippi, Kathy, the Ayers Fordyce case, uh, dealing with um, states' responsibility for publicly supported historically black colleges and universities. And uh, so that case landed on my desk the moment I got there, I arrived in Washington, D.C., and I had to put out some, we had to put out some policy to address the federal government's uh, position with regard to the Supreme Court case uh, dealing with higher education that came out of Mississippi, but of course it applied nationwide. The Southern Education Foundation was doing some research on higher education in the southern states, so they wanted to know what we were doing. A year or so later, after coming to see me, they sent me these volumes of reports that they had produced on higher education throughout the southern states. It was so well done. It was so immaculate. And it, just, it, it looked at higher education uh, and even the K-12 connection uh, and even post-graduate education in a way that I just thought was you know, incredible. And I thought, these guys are impressive. So I say that those two impressions, those were my first two impressions of the Southern Education Foundation. So... When it came to me, you know, the offer of me to interview for the position, I really had some background information to think about. Now, Southern Education Foundation grew out of the Civil War. In fact, it has its origins with George Peabody, who was considered one of the wealthiest men in the nation at the time. Uh, the Peabody School of Education and Human Development at Vanderbilt is named after George Peabody. The Peabody Library in Baltimore, a very, very wealthy man of his day. And um, he was making an argument even before the, uh, the Civil War started that uh, the United States was getting behind uh, economically, that the Europeans were beginning to make money with machines, and particularly the Germans, that this industrial age was coming, uh, and the United States was unprepared for it, and, and we, we were wedded to this agrarian economy. And not only that, we had half the labor enslaved, and that was barbaric. So when the war ended, and George Peabody realized, as others, uh, that most of the reconstruction effort was you know, focused on rebuilding the South, the roads, the bridges, and everything to get the crops back in the field to basically pay for the war. And there was no focus on this new massive population of citizens who had formerly been enslaved. Uh, he took it upon himself to, uh, to create a fund using his vast wealth to buy books and train teachers and build schools in the South to get the population educated. And so he actually put up a million dollars in 1867, and uh, it wasn't just for African-Americans, it was for uh, the newly emancipated population and poor whites. That's what he had in there. Um, because the reality, there was no system of public education in the South for anybody, black or white, in, in the Southern states um, before the Civil War. That The whole Horace man movement, you remember that history from the late 1700s, early 1800s, before what they called back then universal education or mass education, uh, that grew in the North. And it stopped at the Mason-Dixon line and um, uh, eventually got into the South after the Civil War. So that was how we, that was the first start. And then a few years later, after uh, George Peabody put up a million dollars, another wealthy man, George Slater, uh, who was, actually was an abolitionist and uh, made his money in, in the textile industry up in Connecticut. And I, I believe he must have felt some kind of way, given that he built his wealth off of the cotton <laughs> from the South. He wanted to do the same thing George Peabody did. And he put up a million dollars sometime around 1870, again, to train teachers, build schools, buy books. He put up a million. Then another abolitionist, Anna Jeans, considered the wealthiest woman in the nation, one of the wealthiest women in the nation at the time, out of Philadelphia. She was actually a Quaker and had amassed huge sums of money in the um, shipping and industry uh, industry out of Philadelphia. And uh, so she put up a million dollars. But she was more part of that abolitionist movement who abhorred slavery because of their their faith, their religious reasons. So she put up a million dollars. um, And initially, her major focus was on training teachers. And She wanted to build and she did this massive army of black women teachers called the jeans teachers, which later became the jeans supervisors. So the black teaching profession actually has its roots in philanthropy. So all that was going on. Now, going back a little bit. During those first six or seven years, um, as the Peabody Fund, the Slater Fund, and the other funds were building these schools and buying these books and training these teachers, uh, they started saying what private philanthropy will say today, and that is, okay, we can't keep paying for this. You have to sustain this. So uh, the argument was, okay, you have to do in the South the same thing that was done in the North, and that is to create taxation to pay for an education, public education, just like was done in the North which was called universal education, or mass education. So during the Reconstruction period, while the United States, um, well, the Union Army was still in the South, and you know keeping the you know, Ku Klux Klan at bay, and you had a lot of African-Americans elected to office as state senators and state representatives in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee and the Carolinas, it was the Peabody's and the private philanthropy out of Boston and New York. They were drafting the legislation, writing up the legislation and giving it to these elected black officials in in, in the southern states, Um, and they were just marching it down to the state house and submitting legislation to create taxation. And um, it met a little resistance there, just like it did in the North, because just like the North, people would argue, look, I'll I'll pay taxes for roads and for bridges, and maybe even the army, but I'm not going to pay taxes for somebody's child to get educated. If you want your child to get an education, hire yourself a teacher or send them to a local church. Uh, But, you know, taxes for education, that was unknown, uh, unheard of back then. But it happened. We did it. And uh, so all those black legislators put in those, you know, submitted those bills, and uh, they had the numbers back then, and so you got taxation on the books. so that is the legacy of the Southern Education Foundation, because all of those funds, the Peabody Fund, the Slater Fund, the Jeans Fund, and another fund called the Randolph Fund, were all eventually consolidated into the Southern Education Foundation, all except for one, the Rosenwald Fund. And uh, you may have heard of the Rosenwald Schools, uh, which I think was the Sears Roebuck money empire. They didn't, they weren't consolidated. I think they spent down those funds. Um, But ours, you know, the Slater, the Peabody, the Jeans, and a a smaller one called the Randolph were eventually consolidated. um, And the monies were endowed to to form what is now the Southern Education Foundation. so we've carried on this mission over the years. Uh, Of course, we're not building schools and buying books and training teachers, But we have carried on the work in teacher development. We have carried on the work in terms of research and advancing equity in education. We've carried on the work. We have uh, probably 25% of our work has always been in higher education. Uh, Probably 50% or more of the historically black colleges today came out of the Southern Education Foundation, either as the Slater Fund, the Gene Fund, or one of our predecessor funds. Uh, So we still have that that role also, but our primary focus is on K-12 education. And um, we moved where we were chartered in New York City. We moved to the south to Atlanta in 19, or somewhere around the mid-1940s, 1945, where we've been ever
1: since.
0: Well, thank you. That fascinating and powerful history, Raymond. This is Melody Musgrove. So given that incredible history of the foundation, how would you reflect on that history and now kind of assess where we are today in the South with regard to equity for, for all students, but particularly students of color?
2: Good question, Melody. Um, you know, um, reflecting upon that history, you know, and, and let me ask you a question by saying this. When the federal troops were pulled out of the South, uh, one of the first thing the planters, and the planters were the name that was given to the, the large landowners uh, in the South. One of the first thing they would wanted to do was eliminate those taxes for schools, for public education. They, you know, like today, you know, <laughs> no taxes. <laughs> they wanted to eliminate the taxes that were going to pay for public schools. But it was actually poor whites that rose up and said, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, this is actually good for us too." <laughs> so. Uh, let's keep these taxes going, but let's just keep them separate. And they even pushed so far, there was legislation in several states that pushed so far as to say that taxes raised by whites would go to support white schools, taxes raised by blacks would support black schools. But again, it was private philanthropy. A good example was the Slater Fund, which again was was eventually folded into the Southern Education Foundation. The Slater Fund was one of those uh, um, northern philanthropies that was pouring millions of dollars into the South for higher education. So for Ole Miss and uh, University of North Carolina, University of Florida, University of Georgia. A lot of that money to get those schools going, to increase their faculty, to endow chairs, uh, to build museums, came from the Northern philanthropy, Carnegie's and Rockefeller's and, and the Ford Foundation's. Why? Because the idea was, look, if we increase academic academia and, and, and intelligentsia in the Southern states, they're less likely to, you know, return to wanting to enslave people and be more likely to, you know, to admit people in um, as, as equals. When the southern states started moving to, to separate the taxes, so, so the white money would go to support white schools and black schools to support black schools, it was the Slater Fund and many other funds that said, we will stop funding the University of North Carolina. We will stop funding the University of Georgia. We will pull our money out of the University of Maryland. if you do that, so private philanthropy was always trying to stop that. Well, they did for a little while, but oh, you know the history. Eventually, separate but equal became, you know, the status. I look back upon that history, and uh, and I look at where we are today, and I'm sadly not surprised that. Um, that because it wasn't a long time ago, but I'm sadly not surprised that we still find ourselves in a situation where um, inequity uh, just, you know, rises up, um, where tribalism, where people you know, want to pull funds into their own neighborhoods, into their own you know, cultures, uh, as opposed to thinking of us as a community as a one city as one state as one country as one community one people and so that we should have you know equitable funding to get these children what they need you know to get an education you know it, 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 the 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 view ought to be as to where are we where are the disparities and how do we close those disparities but that's not always the case in fact that's too often not the case too often we have philosophies that revolve around let's just privatize the money let's just give it to the market <laughs> you know you know let the private schools uh have access to public funds uh, you don't see that in any other public offering other than schools you don't see that in public museums or public libraries or public parks <laughs> you know but but the, but the public schools for some reason let's let's take some of that money and give it to the private uh, sector so I'm even though I'm not totally surprised that this struggle take, carries on. Um, I see it in the context of history um, that there has always been this struggle. You got a lot of good people out here, uh, in the north, south, everywhere, who do look at children as children. But you at the same time you have uh, some culture, some people, some beliefs, some philosophies that say, let's just take care of this group. <laughs> just give me, give me mine. I would just want to take care of this group as opposed to looking you know, for the entire
0: whole. But it's always the most marginalized that are that are the most disadvantaged or the ones that, that lose the most in a situation like that. You know, in as you know, my background is in the field of special education. And in my classes that I teach at Ole Miss, I have the students read an article entitled Special Education and the Subverting of Brown v. Board of Education by yeah. Connor like and Ferry, which it just seems that, You know, that no matter where we are in history, people find some way to accomplish whatever their ulterior motives are. Which, you know, and I would contend that special education in some ways, as much as I love this field, has been used to further segregate and disenfranchise children of color and children who are are poor, but particularly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. um, I think we still, that is. you know, again, I think we have to be truly honest about where we are that there will always be ways to accomplish a bad end if that's what you are trying to do but you know i think what the work of the the foundation the southern education foundation and many others are trying to do is find the goodwill that brings people together to you know as in the administrations that you and i both worked in realize that you know we're uh, and and even george w bush you know said the rising tide lifts all boats well sometimes that's right Right. But, you know, we've never really had a tide that tried to lift all the boats so we could see whether or not that actually worked.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, Melody, um, uh, be, because that uh, that is ever present, that inequity, that is why it's so important, you know, for you to, uh, for those who want to push for uh, education for all. You know, the, the notion that all children can learn and ought to have the opportunity to learn um, you know, to, to their greatest potential. That's to me, that's why it's so important for us to, um, to have our information right. Research is so important in this um, to, inform, to inform these discussions because the nuances of inequity uh, that oftentimes find themselves through legislation and ultimately enacted in law have to be deciphered. Uh, and they have to be deciphered through research and analysis so that when you do propose legislation or you oppose legislation, you're doing it with the data. You're doing it with the information. It is research-based. To put forward uh, models that can provide a better quality of education, uh, you know, for all students. So, the Southern Education Foundation. I'm very proud to say that we have strongly resurrected our research operation, something that we've had for decades, uh, over 100 years. We've kind of got we had gotten away from it for a little while, but we got it back because, and the main reason why, you know, we moved back into this world of legislation and gathering data and and, and curating research is because we are, are once again. Uh, back in the world of, of legislation, of opposing bad legislation, identifying it for what it is, finding its weaknesses, uh, and then proposing legislation, helping actually so oftentimes to draft legislation. You know, for some of our friends in the General Assemblies throughout the South, who are interested in providing greater and equitable education opportunities for our children.
1: I know that you have talked a lot about the past and pretty much even the present condition of, of where we are now. But what do you think about the next 10 years? Uh, with regard to uh, equity, inequity uh, in the South, uh, as far as the educational system and other people are, are identifying now and at least calling out systemic racism that exists uh, in other, not just education uh, education systems, but in criminal justice or in the healthcare systems. Oh yeah. So, where do you see us ten years from now?
2: I'm very concerned, Kathy. I'm really, really concerned. And and I'll tell you why, for for two reasons, Uh, actually three. One, this coronavirus, this COVID-19, as you know, has had devastating impact on state economies throughout the nation. Revenue streams have, in many places, almost vanished. So we can anticipate in coming budget cycles for there to be massive budget cuts because the money is not there right now. And uh, we have to be particularly mindful or or protective of the least of these. And those are the young people who need a chance in the future, and that is a chance through education. So I'm really concerned uh, about upcoming budget considerations and budget uh, conversations in the various states um, because of the drop in money and drop in funding. Uh, due to COVID-19, and protecting teachers, protecting funding for schools. So that's, that's, that's a concern I have, because that's something that's not going to last, that will have effects for at least the next 10 years, in my opinion. Um, second, I'm concerned because of a tenor, a, a, a mood in this country that is so polarizing uh, right now that where we're not as united as I think we should be, there was a time I believe where this country was had some degree of unity around the subject of um, what's best for our children. But I think you know uh what we're at least for I feel, what we're witnessing here in recent years, not just polarization uh and not just tribalism, but disregard or even a disdain for the poor, <laughs> you know. It's almost as if you blame the poor for their plight, and um, and so I'm, I I I fear that that could find its way into legislation, um, and could find its way into policy, and could find its way into practices. So I'm a little, little concerned. Um, third, um, over the next ten years, I'm concerned that. Um, but a lot of the gains that have been made uh, throughout the country, you folks in Mississippi have made some significant gains, to be honest. You know, a lot of those gains that we've made in the quality of education and education attainment levels you know, across demographics, I'm afraid that over the next 10 years, uh, we will see a continuous slide because of funding, because of the lack of resolve. Uh, and because of polarization. So I'm a little bit concerned there. Now, having said that, I'm not a doom and gloom guy. Uh, Having said all that, I'm highly encouraged because of the youth. (laughs) It seems to be such a huge uh, focus on issues of equity, you know, largely brought about by the incidents up in Minneapolis with George Ford and and, uh, Breonna Taylor and and the inequities that have been unearthed by, uh, or not unearthed, but uh, uncovered by uh, the coronavirus. You see a lot of young people out here now who are from all backgrounds, all races, all demographics, largely protesting, but they, they this is a generation of people who grew up Expecting equity, expecting fairness, you know, and um, and these people are going to be assuming leadership pretty soon. So that gives me a lot of encouragement, actually. So I, I see the next ten years. Um, I mean, I don't. I know I'm not going to be around forever. I don't intend to be running the Southern Education Foundation forever. Um, I wish I had your longevity, Kathy. <laughs> but uh, I know at some point uh, I'm going to have to pass this mantle on uh, to some younger leadership. And I'm really encouraged with what I see out there in terms of their focus, their beliefs, their commitment, uh, and their abilities.
1: Well, in terms of the young leadership or the opportunities for young people to assume leadership, do you have one or two suggestions for us and for the people who are enjoying this conversation as to how we can encourage, nurture leadership uh, across the entire country? Of course, you and I, and Melody, have talked a lot about the South. Mm-hmm. But with regard to leadership development, do you see one or two things that we need to be about doing immediately?
2: Well, uh, let me start by, um, you know, again, um, giving uh, commending the work uh, of, of the center you have there. Um, and the, the focus you have on early childhood learning is indispensable. Uh, you know, you got to get these kids over the hump. You know, you've you got to get them in a pipeline, on a path. Um, of quality learnings to the point where they can become uh, well-equipped leaders. So you you, you can't abandon, you know, the early stages of this and early early childhood learning. In fact, I think you have to intensify that. Having said that, I would encourage opportunities, particularly in the world of higher education, and I'm not saying everybody has to go to college, but I I would really encourage activity in the world of higher education that focuses on what we used to call the humanities, (laughs) Um, there's such a focus on on the STEM, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math, um, where academia has become so polarized, young people uh, are not as well-read as as previous generations. So they do not have um, um, awareness of other cultures and other views from which to call upon Uh, in debates and discussions on policy, on how to build a better, a beloved community or a better community or a united nation. So I would really encourage, uh, uh, you know, leadership development activities, particularly in higher education, that they look towards the well-rounded child, the well-rounded education. um, That comes, I believe, through reading, uh, through exposure to other cultures. Uh, We used to have these ambassador programs, I think the country still does, where you send students off to other countries. But um, we need to be learning more about, um, you know, about other cultures, even right here in this country. We, you know, people call it diversity in higher education. You call it what you want. It's just, it's just learning. You know, a person ought to be able to read, you know, Mark Twain as much as they're able to read Maya Angelou. They ought to know Aristotle as much as they know Naeem Akbar. They ought to know uh, what, what uh, Harriet Tubman wrote um, as much as they should know what William Faulkner wrote. Um, So I just think, you know, well-rounded education, uh, particularly higher education, leads to stronger leadership. Uh, In addition, opportunities, you know, we've got to, you know, make sure we give young people opportunities to lead at an early age. And so that's something the Southern Education Foundation does. You know, we have this old historic iconic leadership development uh, operation that I've actually doubled since I arrived. Going back to the history of the Southern Education Foundation, private philanthropy said, okay, we're building these schools, buying these books and training these teachers. We need people to run this. We need leaders. We need principals and superintendents. So that's when the Southern Education Foundation or the philanthropy back then got into this business of put, getting young people into pipelines to build them as leaders so that they can run these systems of education. So uh, it's important that there's always a focus and a deliberate effort uh, to build leaders. And I, I think that should be, continue to be a matter of
1: importance. Well, I could talk for you to you for probably two or three more hours, and I'm sure Melody has some questions too, but unfortunately I think we've just about run out of time. Melody, do you have any other last questions or thoughts before we have to
0: say our goodbyes? No, this has been such a pleasure, Raymond. Thank you for joining us. I, I'm always reminded of the quote from the, the late, great Paul Wellstone who said, we all do better when we all do better. Hey, that, you know, yeah, This is not about... Yeah, you know, this yeah. is not about you know, slicing the pie smaller, but growing the pie that mm-hmm. we are the most prosperous nation in the world. And we can absolutely provide for all of our citizens an opportunity to live the American dream. And, um, and I think you there at the Southern Education Foundation are doing exactly that. So thank you for your time today.
2: Well, thank you, Melody. And amen and Senator Wellstone. Uh, and that statement, I, I totally subscribe to that. And I just appreciate you ladies having me on your show on this podcast, and uh, I hope I didn't talk too long. So, uh, you know, have me back sometime. I'd be more than happy to do this again.
1: We might do that. Uh, Appreciate you. This is Kathy Grace, and for Melody Musgrove, we want to say, hopefully you will find a great deal to reflect on and act upon some of the things that Raymond Pierce has shared with us today.
0: Our lit bit today is a poem that many of us in the South can identify with. The name of it is Mosquitoes by Catherine Hoth, and this is from poetryfoundation.org. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes with needle noses sucking blood from elbows, cheeks, and chin. Why were you not designed to thrive on brine, on swine, or likewise spiny porcupines? Slap, slap, slap. That's Mosquitoes by Catherine Hoth, poetryfoundation.org. Thank you
1: for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu.
0: Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.